Would you join me in prayer? Father, we confess you are indeed all that we need. You are the only one who can meet us in that place of desperation, who is able to, to reach down into all of our mess and in your mercy draw us up and near yourself. We pray this morning, as traditionally it's celebrated your entry, Jesus, into Jerusalem, that we would be ready to receive what you have for us, Lord Jesus, from your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Encourage us, speak to us, train us, teach us through your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Have a seat. Good morning. Let me just grab my notes. Usually I take these out before I start praying, but I got excited and I didn't get them open. We are uh, taking a little bit of a, a deviation, if you will, in our preaching schedule Uh, We've been in Luke's Gospel, and we're going to stay in Luke's Gospel today, but we're going to skip forward just a a little. Um, If you've been following along this spring with us, we're in the final few days of a uh, New Testament reading challenge, if you will, that started the beginning of the year. And I know with with missed days and busy schedules, uh, you might, if you've been tracking with us and trying to read through the New Testament in these first three months of 2021. Maybe if you've been tracking, maybe you're a little bit behind. If you're like me, things crowd into your day, right? Uh, Maybe you've been plugging along, and so um, if you have skipped days and you're just kind of reading whatever day it is that day, that's great. If you've been trying to keep it in uh, order, if you will, and so the calendar might say uh, March 28th, and you have the checkbox back, you know, February 18th, that's okay too. It's okay. It's never a failure to be in God's Word, okay? And, and in this process, whether you've been tracking or maybe this is new to you or maybe you're visiting this morning. By the way, we've been reading through the New Testament as a church, um, so welcome. Uh, you can still get that reading plan if you'd like to read through the New Testament in 90 days. Um, it's on our website. We have that. Uh, but, but even with busy schedules and missed dates, uh, we have had conversations in community group and have heard from people just how rich it has been to be in God's Word with even a little bit more regularity. This forced wrestling with hard things, deepening of convictions in Jesus and in our faith, and the timeliness of God's Word. I've had multiple conversations where someone has said to me, this morning I was reading in John's Gospel because that was on the schedule. And this afternoon, I had an opportunity to put that into practice. Isn't God cool? Like, that's the conversations we're having with people. The timeliness of the eternal Word of God. So we want to encourage you to continue to drink deeply from God's Word. To double back on maybe days you missed. Or if you are a little bit behind, but you're trying to keep up in order, to keep going. We want to encourage you in that. Marty has put together, too, some things to help continue our reading through 2021. And uh, those resources will be in our community groups. You can talk to your community group leader. Um, We'll put those uh, resources in the weekly update if you'd like to keep reading, maybe diving into parts of the Old Testament or or some other things. So 
we want to encourage you to continue to drink deeply there of God's Word. And the purpose of all of that, these first few months of 2021, at least in part, was to acknowledge our dependence on God. 2020 was a huge reminder that we as a people are in desperate need of wisdom, desperate need of insight, and desperate need of a foundation of truth. So we turn to God's revealed Word to anchor our hearts, to tie our hearts to something solid, what God has revealed about Himself, what He's revealed about us, and what He's revealed about the world and how we're to live in it. Because I believe a person who is saturated by, steeped in God's Word, thinks differently, feels differently. Their hands and their feet work differently. Because what we believe about God and ourselves, and about the world, affects how we live in it. This is why God's Word is of central importance to us as followers of Jesus. So we want to continue in that, and we'd like to build on that this morning by spending the next season of time focusing on prayer and the discipline of prayer. Now, for many of us, prayer is is challenging, and, and it could be any number of reasons. Uh, For one, it seems the needs are just too great, right? The, The loss of a loved one, unrest in our communities, and violence in places all around the country even this week, leaving death in its wake. Sometimes it just seems too much. Sometimes prayer is hard because the recipient of our prayers is not in our view, right? We can't see God with our own eyes, My wife can know that I'm listening to her when she's talking because I'm looking at her. By the way, you should look at people when they're talking to you, right? Eye contact. (laughs) And when I'm not looking at her when she's talking to me, it can make her feel unloved and unheard. Communication gets difficult, right? We offer our prayers to a God we cannot see, and that can make it hard. Prayer is often hard because not only do we have these physical limitations, we are here in the flesh and God is spirit, but also because we are finite and limited and our understanding is limited. But God is not confined by time and space. So for what feels urgent for us might feel and seem unanswered by God in a given time period. And yet, in light of God's eternal perspective, His sovereign will, well, we don't always get the answers to our prayers in the time and manner in which we'd like. And so so sometimes not only is our, our timeline different and our perspective different, but sometimes we even do get an answer to our prayers, and we don't like that answer. We pray for protection, and yet we still get hurt. We pray for provision, and yet we still have needs. We pray for peace, and there is still struggle and suffering. We pray for healing, and we still face death. So prayer, its purpose and function in our lives gets, well, muddled. How do we, finite, limited humans, communicate with a holy God who we cannot see, who, as the Scriptures say, dwells in unapproachable light, who is altogether other 
and different than we are. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon gave this simple definition of prayer, and I love it. Prayer is dealing with God. Prayer is dealing with God. It simplifies all the complex reality of who God is and who we are. Prayer is dealing with God. And the dealing we have about God and with God is shaped and formed by what we believe about Him. Which is why our practice of prayer is immediately connected and intimately interwoven with our reading and study of God's Word. So on the back end of this challenge to read and study God's Word with intention, we want to place before you a follow-up challenge. Over the next few months, we want to, as a congregation, as a people, engage more deeply in the practice and discipline of prayer. And we're going to jumpstart that today. We're going to stop where we're at in Luke 9 and just jump ahead a little bit to Luke 11, where one of the disciples asks, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. So you can turn to Luke chapter 11. We're going to focus on verses 1 through 4 of Luke chapter 11 in the section known as the Lord's Prayer, but we'll read all the way through to verse 13. Let's read together. It should be on the screen as well. Luke 11, verses 1 through 13 this morning. This is the word of the Lord for us. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone, as we ourselves, excuse me, as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived in a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. And my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is God's Word for us this morning. The big idea this morning is really just the reality that we so often struggle to understand and practice deep, consistent, faith-filled prayer. But Jesus is teaching us how to pray, and He's giving us a sense of assurance of God's promise to answer. Jesus is teaching us how to pray and giving us assurance of His promise to answer. So first I want to look at the posture of prayer we see here. And then I want to look at the prayer itself that Jesus gives as an instruction for his disciples. So first, let's look at the posture here. When I say posture, I mean positioning. 
How have they aligned themselves as it relates to prayer? Luke tells us that in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, that Jesus had been praying. And this is something that Jesus does regularly. After a long season of ministry, he's been teaching and healing, he pulls away to a quiet place to pray. And one of his disciples who's observing him says, Lord, can teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Now this, this guy's talking about John the Baptist who trained his disciples in all manner of spiritual disciplines, studying the law and the prophets, how to read them, how to understand them, how to interpret them. Prayer and fasting was a regular part of their teaching and training as John's disciples. He, John was training his disciples in godliness, in spiritual maturity. And this disciple asks Jesus, can you teach us to pray like that? This disciple's posture was one of humility, and posture is important. See, this, this, he's not approaching Jesus from the angle like, I, I can do that, that doesn't look so hard. He, he sees something happening there, seeing what Jesus is doing and listening to what Jesus has been teaching, and then watching Jesus pull away to pray, the disciple says to himself, I've got to ask Jesus about that. And that's the first thing I think we can learn from Luke 11, from this disciple, actually asking our Lord to help us in the how. And not just in the training of practical steps. He may have been asking, can you show me that formula, please? Because this is working for you, Jesus. He may have been asking that. But I think it's more than that. This is not just a training in the practical how. This is a training of the heart. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 6, is the other place where we read this exchange, or an exchange like it, rather, between Jesus and his disciples. This What's, a, what's known as the Lord's Prayer. It's recorded also in Matthew chapter 6. You can turn there if you'd like. You don't have to. I'm going to turn there if I can find my spot. And starting in verse 5, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6. He's cautioning now his disciples against praying in a in an unworthy manner. Starting in verse 5, he says this, Don't pray like the hypocrites, for, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. This is why posture is important. Their, their desire in their prayers is to be seen. That's their goal. Look how spiritual I am based on the eloquence of my prayers. Now, in our modern context, it might be equivalent to the humble brag social media post and the incessant checking to see how many people have liked or commented on it. This is attention-seeking. This is self-righteousness, and Jesus calls them hypocrites. They're praying all right, and Jesus kind of soft rebukes them in front of the disciples. Instead, Jesus gives a counter. He says this, pray in secret and your father who is in secret will reward you. Notice the antidote to public hypocrisy is humility. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. 
So now there's, a, there's another caution. If one caution is the self-righteousness of those who pray to be seen, a whole other one is, is a group of, Jesus is speaking here of Gentiles, who are trying to prove themselves by their many words to God. Look how worthy we are, God, because we pray so well. In many pagan cultures of the day, religious worship was wrapped up in ritual and repetition, chanting and droning to stir up the emotions of the worshipers and possibly to get the attention out of whatever God, small g, or deity they were trying to impress. This is the spiritual equivalent of adding unnecessary words to your book report so that it meets that two-page requirement, right? Rather than plainly stating the main character had a hard decision to make, you say something like, our primary protagonist labored over the excruciating reality that his choices had implications that would have lasting ramifications, and the outcome of his actions would have ripple effects throughout the whole community. You got like 30 words out of a five-word sentence. That works for AP English and is very unnecessary when it comes to prayer. That's what Jesus is highlighting here. Instead, Jesus says, you don't have to do that because your Father already knows what you need before you ask. He's not saying don't ask. He's just saying don't think you have to impress and prove to Him your need. He already knows it. If you believe you have to get God's attention and prove your sincerity, then volume and repetition and the right combination of words is very important. If your heart is prideful and your spirituality is based on how you measure up to others, then being seen and heard, being that very spiritual person is very important. And Jesus is saying these two postures are faulty because they are inconsistent with who God is and how He relates to His children. Our posture in prayer matters because it says something about what we believe about God. As Charles Spurgeon said, again, this time on the posture of prayer, he says this, as supplicants, as those coming to God with our prayers, as supplicants we must come joyful but not presumptuous, familiar as children before a father, yet reverential, means humble, as creatures before their maker. Posture, he says, is not everything, yet it is something. (laughs) Prayer is heard when knees cannot bend, but it is seemly that an adoring heart should show its awe by prostrating the body and bending the knee. Spurgeon references the bending of the knee and the bowing of the face to the ground. These outward postures of the body represent the inward posture of the heart. The proud heart is seen in the proud person, loudly proclaiming for all to hear. But the humble heart bows in reverence, recognizing that God, to God that we are the needy and that He is the supplier. The graceless heart is heard with its many words and seen in its many outward signs, striving to prove that they are worthy to be heard by God. But the humble heart comes simply, not as if they're owed by God, but hopeful that He does hear them, trusting God, acknowledging that He is holy, not assuming anything, but adoring Him. Lord, teach me to pray like that. So before we talk about how we pray, the words and the structure, and we look a little bit more deeply at the Lord's Prayer, let me ask this question. 
can we examine the posture of our own hearts? What is the posture of yours? I don't need to ask you about the depth or frequency of your prayer life. If you think it's pretty good or if you feel it could be better, if you were to ask me, I'd probably say something like you, it's okay, could be better. But it doesn't really matter if some, how I can convince you that you should pray more often or I can give you some good tips and practices. Because those things don't reposture and reposition my heart. I'm already convinced that I should pray more often. I'm already convinced that I should pray more deeply. My goal this morning is to direct you to the question, what do you believe about God? And your answer to that will shape, as Spurgeon says, how you deal with Him. So I want to urge you this morning to intentionally position your heart, ready to hear from Him, asking Jesus together, Lord, will you teach me to pray? That is why posture is important. Now, let's look at the prayer that Jesus gives them as instruction. Jesus tells them when you pray, and in Matthew 6, Jesus says, pray like this. Now, as an aside, some scholars are split on if this is two retellings of the same event or two different places where Jesus taught something similar. I'm inclined toward the second one, that more than once Jesus gave instruction to the disciples who followed him around on how to pray. Partly because each one happens at different times in the ministry of Jesus, although sometimes the gospel writers will reposition a story a little bit. But I, but I think these are far enough apart that they're likely different. In, in the Matthew passage, in Matthew 6, it places this teaching on prayer right in the middle of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is one long sermon, one large block of teaching. And in Luke's account, an unnamed disciple, maybe even someone outside of the, the 12 whose names we know, asks his questions at a, like seemingly a random time of prayer. And between the two accounts, the language of the prayer is consistent but different, which leads me to believe that Jesus taught on this more than once. And also, he says, when you pray, pray like this. He doesn't say, pray this. He says, pray like this. And what's fascinating is this prayer for God's people has been preserved and prayed and recited for generations, along with things like the Apostles' Creed and other confessions we find in Scripture. One more aside, I think the Lord's Prayer is and can be a very rich and faith-anchoring thing to pray together corporately as a church. And it can serve as a framework for our prayers individually. It can do both things. To confess together the same things that sisters and brothers have been confessing for centuries ties us to the foundations of our faith. We'll get a chance to pray together later. Now, looking at the prayer itself, it can kind of be broken into two sets of petitions. Petitions are asks. The first set dealing with God and His glory, and the second set with our need. Look at where Jesus directs His prayer. He starts with chapter 11 of Luke, end of verse 2. When you pray, say, Father. And in Matthew's account, He says, Our Father in heaven. 
Now, it's one thing for Jesus to pray to the Father. This is not a new thing for him. He's already made this claim about himself. Much to the frustration of the religious leaders around him, that he is indeed the Son of the Father. But here, here he encourages the disciples to also refer to God as their Father. Not the God of our fathers, our Father. This is pretty significant. Jesus goes on, if you look at the the last part of, of Luke 11, verses 11 through 13, why can you trust God as your Father? Why can you call on Him like that? He asks the question, what father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to all who ask of Him? He's helping them see it is good for you to call upon God as your Father, and He is trustworthy. He knows what He's doing in caring for you. He will give you good things. I mean, you guys get it, and you guys aren't even good dads. And they're like, yeah, you're right. We are imperfect dads, and I know how to give my kid a good gift. How much better, Jesus says, is your heavenly Father. He's telling them, you are also children of the Father. And if you are His beloved children, then you can approach Him like this. And that little phrase, our Father, sets the stage for the rest of the outline of prayer. God is their Father and He is good. Now, the first uh, few petitions focus on God. It starts, our Father, who art in heaven, if you use Matthew's language, and then the first few petitions or asks are God-directed. First, hallowed be your name. This highlights that, yes, He is our Father, and yes, He is God, the I Am, God Most High, the Almighty, all these names of God, holy is your name. Honored be your name. Revered be your name. Sanctified be your name. Prayer begins with the humble expectation that your Father, who is holy, meaning perfect, and exceedingly good, He is listening. The opening of the Lord's Prayer in this case, hallowed be your name, is a prayer that says, God, glorify your name in me and in the words that are about to come out of my mouth. Hallowed be your name. It positions all of our asks and our needs underneath the holiness and glory and majesty and power and goodness of God. Holy be your name. Seems like a pretty good way to start prayers. Next, he says, your kingdom come. Now, this isn't a request that God would rule and reign as the king. He is already and always doing that. This is more like the eager prayer that the Lord would not be slow in bringing about his kingdom in our lives. He already rules and reigns over the universe. This petition says, would you bring your rule and reign to bear here? Don't wait to bring your glory here. O Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, right? Lord, bring your kingdom. Lord, 
bring about your glory. Bring us all the way till the end. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Your kingdom come, your will be done. To pray your kingdom come is to pray that the rule and reign of Christ would spread. This is almost a prayer of salvation. It fits well in this traditional Sunday of Palm Sunday when they would welcome Jesus into Jerusalem the week leading up to his crucifixion. And what were they proclaiming? Hosanna, save us. Save us. You rule over the cosmos, rule here in my heart as well. And rule in the hearts of the lives of all the people who dwell on the earth. Matthew has an addition that Luke doesn't. Luke just references your kingdom come. Matthew has this addition to this part of the prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is an obvious and important concession that we make in prayer. Your will, not mine. We don't have to add not mine. It's just built into your will be done. This is an outward submission to God's will. Your will be done is a petition that surrenders our wills to the will of our Heavenly Father, who you remember is good and holy and knows how to give good gifts. So it is not a threat to us to say, I'm going to trust my desires and let them be conformed to whatever it is you feel is best, God. And it ties us to the desire to actually know His will and by His grace to live according to it as He makes us able. Teach me Your will and Your ways that I might not sin against You, the psalmist says, that I might obey Your word, that I might love You, Lord, with all my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength, that I might love my neighbor as myself. Your kingdom, Your will, here among us and through us. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done. These first three petitions are focused Godward on God and his glory. But the prayer is not over. The second half of the prayer turns the requests towards our need. Verse uh, uh, 3, chapter 11, verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. This is an acknowledgement that God provides what we need. It's a a shout out, if you will, to God's provision of manna in the desert where he provided food for them every day and gave them exactly what they needed that day. Not more, not less. Give us today, each day, our daily bread. Now, now, lest you think this is contrary to hard work, the Apostle Paul instructed the church that sloth is not a virtue and that uh, someone who is able to work but doesn't, they don't eat, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. In the first century Near East uh, agrarian, agriculturally based society, a, labor, a laborer would work hard for the day and receive at the end of that day a day's wages, which wasn't much. And you had what you needed for the day. But even our own work does not mean that we are our own providers. 
James 1, 17 reminds us that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from our Father. And Paul asks in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, what, did, what do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Give us each day our daily bread is a confession of our dependence on God for everything. Next, Luke 11, verse 4. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Here we have salvation language again. We are the ones needing to be saved. He is the forgiver. We are the forgiven. He owes nothing. We owe everything. And from our status as forgiven, we forgive. That's how this is framed. Notice the connection. Forgive our sins as we also forgive. You don't have to turn there. But if you were to flip back just a few pages in Luke to Luke chapter 7, you would read a story of a woman whose life was defined by her sin. She was known by her sin. She sits at Jesus' feet weeping. Weeping. Because he's showing her mercy. She anoints him with expensive oils, the cost of which was remarkable. And when everyone else is indignant, how dare she do this? Doesn't he know who she is? Jesus responds to those who are scoffing by saying this, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. See, prayer like this rightly positions us as recipients of God's mercy. And then, and then it asks that God would make us merciful like He is merciful. So we don't have time, but if you want, write down Matthew 18, verses 23 through 35. Make a note. Go read that this week. The parable of the unforgiving servant. In short, the heart that is unforgiving is unable to truly grasp what it means to be forgiven. Lord, give us understanding of how great your forgiveness is and let my understanding of your mercy move me and be proved in me by my extension of mercy to others. Lord, forgive us and help us to forgive. There's one last petition here. Matthew says, excuse me, Luke 11 says, and lead us not into temptation. And Matthew 6 adds, but deliver us from evil. Now this one might seem odd because God wouldn't lead us into temptation, right? Of course not. James 1 is pretty clear, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, James says. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 17, 9, wrote, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
I always want to quote Jeremiah 17 back to anything I see on the internet that says, follow your heart. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Good luck with that. Right? Lead us not into temptation is the acknowledgement that we fight a dual enemy. The enemy of the flesh or the heart, which although put to death in the death of Christ, still fights like a zombie, dead and yet still trying to kill us. Maybe the zombie analogy, my kids don't like that analogy, makes sense to me, so we're going to run with it. The flesh is put to death, we are dead in the death of Christ and raised again to new life in Him, and yet the old self, the old Adam, the flesh still is trying to kill me and you. And we have an enemy, Satan, who hates God, who's jealous of God's glory, and who despises God's people because he despises all those who are recipients of God's grace and who live to God's glory. And Satan, the father of lies, the accuser, seeks to tempt, attack, steal, and destroy everything good that God makes and that God does. Oh, Lord, deliver me, is the prayer. Deliver me. Turn my heart towards righteousness and holiness and away from temptation and destruction. Deliver me. God. See, these are good prayers. Just on their face, they're good. And we can say, okay, maybe, maybe we do struggle in prayer and maybe reorienting our hearts around God's glory will, will move my heart or move my lips to prayer more regularly or more wholeheartedly. But what about when we, when we do pray? What about when we pray and the answer doesn't come? And we start to wonder, what's the point of praying anyway, or, or when, we, when we do get an answer and we don't like that answer, because that answer is no. See, we don't have time this morning because we're already further on our time than I would hope to be. I couldn't edit any more out of this this week. We don't have time today to fully unpack these legitimate wrestles and challenges, and that, that ultimately is not my aim this morning. We, we can't cover it all. And I don't mean to sidestep it. I want this to be an open door to a, a few weeks and months of digging into this together. See, our hope is that from here, we can begin to wrestle with these challenges, digging in and letting our hearts be shaped and formed by what God's Word tells us about Himself and about us and what it means that we have a communication relationship with Him. So to help us with that, we've put together a prayer calendar for the month of April with a lot of scripture and, and a simple prayer prompt each day to give us opportunities to, to press into these questions, to deepen our understanding of prayer, to challenge areas of unbelief that have crept up in our hearts when it comes to prayer. They look like this. I have one here. A little explanation on the back, uh, just a simple prompt each day. We'll have them on our website. We'll have them in our weekly update. Your community group leaders will have access to them. We have them in the back table here. We have some at the table on the way out. And again, this is just a piece of paper. But the hope here is that this moves us, prompts us to engage deeply with what God's Word has given us about who God is and who we are and what this prayer relationship, what this dealing with God thing is all about. And the hope is to continue this through the summer 
each month with some different prompts. Here starting with digging into what it is and then moving into prayer for one another and the needs around us. And along with that, we're encouraging some more focused times of prayer in community groups in the coming months. So if you're a community group leader, you should have seen that in the email that went out last week. And if you didn't, you need to read your emails more carefully. We want to encourage some more focused time of prayer together in community groups in the coming months, as well as some dedicated times of corporate prayer together outside of Sunday mornings. For example, on Wednesday mornings, there's a group of people who connect over Zoom to pray together for about a half an hour from 7.30 to 8 a.m. You're welcome to join. Uh, The links, again, all of that will be available. And coming up during the Muslim celebration of Ramadan, we'll have prayer guides in the back if you'd like to pray for Muslims around the world as they seek Allah during Ramadan, that they would find Jesus. This is the thing, these are the things we want to pray for. And the goal here is to dig into God's work, get God's word, Do the work here and here. So when it comes to prayer, posture and promise hem in practice. Here's what I mean. And here's here's what I mean as we close. Posture, approaching God as Father. Believing He's always good. That His will is better than mine. That His kingdom is a better kingdom. And His rule is wiser and better for my flourishing than anything I could construct on my own that He is the provider for all of my needs, that His mercy is inexhaustible and is available to me, that He will protect me, that He will lead me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake, that He is working all things together for my good and for His glory. And so even if it seems the answer is no, we can have confidence that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. If this is my posture, then it will inevitably affect my practice. And that is my hope, my humble hope for us in this season. So for the next few months, we want to encourage you to continue to feast on the Word of God and let His Word feed our prayers that our hearts might continue to be conformed to His will, that we might have our hope anchored in the sure promises of Jesus. Lord, teach us to pray like this. Would you pray with me now? Father, we confess that you indeed are holy and that you are good, that your will is better than ours, that your kingdom is better, that your rule is wiser, that you have a better perspective on what is good for me than I do. Thank you that you are merciful, that you are generous in your provision, and that you are overwhelming in your mercy that is available to us. We confess it is easy for us to get bogged down and distracted and despair because the needs around us seem so heavy. And yet, Would you lift our eyes to see you for who you are? 
Would you be the anchor of our hope? And would you show yourself to be mighty? Would you stir in our hearts a fresh humility and a dependence on you? And would you loose our mouths with praise? Would your word fuel our prayers? We ask this, please. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.